0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to
1: allthews.3cr.org.au.
0: The AI is presented on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. I wish wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land that we continue to live work, love and learn from. I would like to pay my respects to the elders past present and extend this this respect to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening in. Sovereignty has never ceded. You just listened to Tea for Two by Art Tatum and Shame um, Slash Desire by Habits. Um, You are listening to Queering the Air on 3CR radio station. Presenting and producing this program is Devana. Hello, I hope Everyone is having a fabulous Sunday and um is kind of staying warm through the cold. Um I'm joined today by Iris. Iris just joined us straight from the Commonwealth Games, um a rally um, for that.
2: Not quite the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> I was just at a like um a rally against the Commonwealth Games, um a wealth Games rally put on called put on in solidarity against the the sort of police Repression and violence. Thalmot games have faced and um, protesters have faced up on the so- so-called Gold Coast. And yeah, there was just a small action at 2 p.m. outside the British cons- consulate and consulate consulate consulate. And consulate. How do you pronounce that? Um, yeah, and a few speeches were given uh, and the Union Jack was cut out of the Australian flag. Um, yeah, yeah. And some more, I suppose some more context is like the Commonwealth Games is was formerly known as the British Empire Games, and it it's it's kind of it's a continued celebration of colonization, as is this country. And um, there's been two weeks of protest by um, a bunch of uh, indigenous protesters, mostly in, in the Gold Coast, and you can. Follow Jack Lattermore from The Guardian in terms of some up- more updates on it, because is going to be the stolen... I mean, no, it's going to be the closing ceremony tonight, and there's um, more protests planned for that. And in the last few days, Dylan Voller and Ruby Warden have been continually arrested and have been targeted by the police. Um, so, yeah...
0: Um, Thank you so much for that, Iris. Thanks also for the updates. And please follow the reporter you mentioned by The Guardian.
2: Uh, Jack Lattimore. And also follow the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance on Facebook or the Brisbane um, Sovereign Aboriginal Embassy.
0: Thank you so much for any more updates. Um, Today we are up uh, we have a very special guest. We have Marisa Wikomenaika. Hi Marisa. Hello. Um, and Marisa is a published author, a freelance journalist, a reported edit um a reputed editor and also a committed committee member of the MEAA. Um, so Marisa and my and our like our lives have had so many connections and cross sections, but I just met her this year in person. Um, so I <laughs> met Marisa last year. To a Facebook co- group called Women and Non Binary People of Color Career's Networking page. Um, Marisa liked my comments and responded to any questions I had. So, very naturally and almost seamlessly, she became a mentor and a friend to me, the perfect go to person for a baby journal sh- struggling through the tumultuous media industry. Um, she's almost like the lesser bangs know, almost famous for me, um, and without the weed, um, and the smoke. But exactly like that. Um, we talked during really odd hours um, in the morning, and then Marisa's is always happy to provide advice and any wisdom. Um, so we we, uh, we obviously talked on Facebook, and then we met up for dumplings at Shanghai House and showed in for coffee at the Windsor Hotel. Um, we, over a summer afternoon in Melbourne, we discovered we had much in common. Marisa and I are actually neighbors. Um, we'd been encouraged to pursue writing from a young age. We had both completed short stints at this organization back home, um, two organizations back home, actually. Uh, we have a lot of uh, mutual connections and professional connections, and we also share cross-cultural identities. So now we are going to talk to Marisa, and we'd first like to touch upon your identity as a queer person of color in the ultra-conservative society of Sri Lanka, can you tell us a little bit about being a queer person in Sri Lanka? What What's the general conses- consensus around that? How do people react to that? Okay, first, uh, Happy New Year to all my uh, Sri Lankan
1: fellow Sri Lankans. Uh, it's Sindhala and Tamil New Year this weekend, so Happy New Year. I hope you're having Keribak. <laughs> I don't get to have Keribak. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, being a queer person, okay, so it's a lot more, it's a lot better now than when I was growing up. When I was growing up, it was very much something that definitely had to be kept quiet. Uh, I remember growing up, I knew something was a bit off because I knew I was interested in women when I was in school. And I also knew that I had to be very careful around my female friends. Even if I was very close to them, I knew that, um, there was, there are things that I, I had to stop myself from doing. I could not be too close to them. Even if I was, my intention was totally, you know, platonic. But because other people would use it as a derogatory term, you know, and they'd start teasing them, and that was what people would use. Oh, you are so gay. Oh, oh, you are a lesbian now. And then people would be freaked out by that. So I'd had to. It became a habit to sort of hide that sort of. Mm. You know, you, you didn't. It was unconscious. It was just you never spoke about um, the people you dated that were outside of what was expect. You ex were expected to date yeah and i think that was both for men and women so for me and for a lot of my uh fellow school friends who later on i discovered you know went on to um have uh homosexual relationships and so on uh it it would be something that maybe their friends would find out about later on but they would never actually come out with it so like even now If some of my close friends would say, oh, but, you know, how do we know this? Other people want proof as well sometimes that you have to prove that you are Mm. a certain uh, queer identity and everything. And um, they're like, oh, have you ever dated so uh, this sort of person? Have you ever dated this person of this gender and so on? We've never heard of it. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, I'm protecting those people. They may not be wanting to be out of the closet. Yeah. I'm also unconsciously uh, very much aware it's not always a situation where you can openly refer to all of that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's much better now. They have things like a pride parade. They had one last year, and I think there's a community that's building up and slowly, you know, people are open to it, but it's also people will talk about it in their families, but they want you to keep quiet about it. And when I was growing up, there were a few people who are obviously out and proud yeah but they were always in the entertainment sphere and they had to be kind of this entertaining person so people like colu for example people loved him he was a celebrity he's He Uh, has a couple of
0: restaurants. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. he's
1: a celebrity He's also like a society person. Yeah, yeah, so he's a society person. So there is this box that you have to inhabit if people are okay with you, you know, and Shyam Selvadurai left the country and then came back, you know, and now it's okay. But, like, for quite a lot of time when I was growing up, it wasn't okay for someone like Shyam to be around and be a writer, but now he's celebrated and, you know. So there are people like Shyam and Kolu, but they're few and far between, and there are some boxes you have to tick if you want to be in that where you're, you're tolerated but you know you're not yeah people acted, I, like I think
0: even with them like whenever like for example Kolu would walk into the room you know people would always be like yeah do you know you know yeah like, yeah yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it's always like you know they would like whisper into each other's ears yeah, um you have to also and that identity would become you like you yes. would never be more than your sexual orientation yeah. or the gender you've chosen, for example. Yeah, right? you'd have
1: to really play it up and uh, it, that that's the sad part because it's only a p- small part of you, you know. Um, and it's kind of yeah. sad
0: that to be of a different sexual orientation, you have to be performative as well. Yes. Like, it's, there's a niche for you, you have to perform to that niche. I think that's yeah. very disturbing. So, we've touched upon sexual orientation, we'd like to touch upon gender now as mm-hmm. well. Could you talk a bit about your experience with it, your understanding of it and what what, how you have navigated um, stigma or any kind of oppression through Sri Lanka with your gender identity?
1: Well, I've always been raised female, and even with that, I was not your stereotypical female or what they expected. I was not a good Sri Lankan girl. I was not a good little Sinhalese girl. The things I liked to do, the things I was interested in, those sorts of behavioral things. The the ideas I had, I was very, um, I suppose, westernized, liberalized from their point of view. wasn't brought up very traditionally. So I blame my parents for that. Ha-ha. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But then, uh, I guess because I'm used to the body I'm in, and now it's been... A while uh, now it's been it's taken a long time for me to kind of figure out that oh okay i'm actually non-binary and that uh i think non-binary is the best term i don't actually think about my gender so one day maybe i feel a bit more male one day maybe i feel more female but most days i just don't even think about that and it doesn't come across to me people however do put a gender on you you know so they, yeah. they read you as female and then they decide to treat you um based on that. And that's why I I sort of stand with women's rights and the fight for that because I'm like you should be treating me equally regardless of how you read my gender. You Absolutely. know? And regardless of what my gender is when I tell it to you. Yeah. So I don't mind people saying she or her, I don't mind the pronouns for me personally because for me it's like, well, that's your perception. Yeah. If you get it wrong, that's on you. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm just doing my thing.
0: So you've also so. told me that Pronouns don't matter, and neither does any kind of medical thing. Um, could you talk a little bit about this? Why Why does it personally not affect you?
1: Yeah, I fully understand that it affects other people, and you know, I'll fight for their right to have surgery if they wish to have uh, pronouns. Um, if they wish, and always ask people about their preferred pronouns. But for me personally, I, it doesn't matter because. I'm not really very interested in how people gender me. I rather like, look, if you're going to talk to me, you're going to talk to me. That's fine. If you can't get on board with the she or the her or the they or the them or whatever it might be, um, that that's fine. Can you just treat me as a normal person, please. Um, I'd like that to be resolved and then we can slowly resolve grammar issues personally yeah. for me. And if people say she or her, I'm so used to that. I think it's habit. You know, I'm so, I'm so used to that. I have no problem with the female side of me and including my physical body. I have no problem with that. I need people to understand that I'm just not that only. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, maybe... Like, my body, I'm about 60% happy with in terms of, hey, if I could have male genitalia, I'd have that too. I'd love to be a hermaphrodite. Yeah. But I'd love to be a working hermaphrodite. I want everything. But you can't have that with surgery now. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah right now surgery you have to lose something in order to have something you know you have yeah. to pick one gender Give or another and yeah, yeah so uh, that's why surgery is not for me right now interesting
0: yeah. thank you so much for opening up about that on radio yeah. so another question <laughs> I have this is a bit funny is you know what if the aunties back home found out about your gender identity and your sexual orientation oh, what, how would they react what would they say <laughs> very badly you can, you can mimic them if you want no <laughs> how, would they, how would they go you know, you know the way they are. They love. They've yeah, got yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. They've got cell phones as well, so they are oh, always. God. Oh god, yeah. No,
1: I'm very careful about what I put out because not not for my sake necessarily. Because look, I'm here in Australia, and like, there's very little they and really um, score. Even if they score me, it doesn't have much of an effect. But I'm very protective of my family, and my mother and my sister know what I'm like. They're quite accepting and everything. But at the same time, you don't want aunts from across the globe calling my mother up and constantly badger, badgering her at any given time of the day. I don't want my mother to go out to social events and be <laughs> constantly badgered by other people. I don't want people gossiping about the way my mom has raised her children. Yeah. Right. So there, there is that sort of thing. So I'm very careful about uh, whether the aunts get to know or not for that reason specifically. My sister and I, we don't mind. We can brush it off. But my mom still has to live in this society. She has friends. Uh, Friends might be cool, but at the same time, this does not need to be the topic of the conversation. My mom's a very busy person. She has no time to be fielding phone calls. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's not just this thing. I like aunts. I like that the Sri Lankan aunties are like that they'll poke their nose into any sort of business everything everything I go to a protest march for something totally unrelated I can't tell the aunts about that you know like next thing like oh she might get shot why have you raised your kids like this you know like something weird like that yeah, it's absolutely. just strange things or you know something like going out to a nightclub if they're a little bit more traditional they'll be like oh she's at a nightclub why are you yeah. letting her go out and party God you know? knows what she's doing <laughs> there
0: why is she in a nightclub Yeah. some of my aunts are cool yeah and but these I, are the aunties these or are the, the, aunties. The, the, the aunties. There are
1: some aunts related to you that are totally cool with it, and that's great. One-on-one, you can chat to them and everything. But, like, no, I don't want to stir it.
0: <laughs> I should just give some context. In Sri Lanka, anyone who's, like, an old,
1: old friend female. Or
0: family or acquaintance person is called auntie. We never call them Mrs. This or Mrs. That. Yeah. Um we always call them aunties. So that's yeah. the reference to aunties. And there's always a
1: subset of them that's very huge, has a lot of influence and my God <laughs> they gossip. They gossip. They matchmake as well. <laughs> yeah. and they
0: keep, you know, the surveillance is on. Yeah. That
1: that's happened to me as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. I know, I can totally relate. <laughs> um so this this thing of coming out is a very like westernized concept i feel and mm-hmm. you mentioned previously about your friends as well you know you've heard about their relationships that weren't part of heterosexuality mm-hmm. do you think coming out exists in sri lanka or should it or should sri lanka kind of navigate its own process um, uh, and its own traditions with sexuality
1: I think it's very strange to Automatically assume everyone has to come out Because I think, look, people are coming out all the time To different groups and People in their lives in different situations All the time There are some people here who know about me And there are quite a lot of people who don't know And I will never tell them you know? <laughs> They might find out from some other source But I'm never going to be like have a party And have a big declaration um, Yeah, And I think That's reflective of, I suppose, the person I am. I meet a lot of different groups. I'm involved in a lot of different things. People, It's not a homogenous community that I can all declare to at once, yeah, this is me. Um, I don't know if coming out is necessarily something suited because the other thing is just tell the people that you care about knowing. Everybody else doesn't need to know. Mm -hmm. Like my mom... Talks about this as well. Like, we don't talk about other people's sexual lives, that's their private business. Yeah. Right? We can talk about it in terms when we're fighting for rights or things like that, right? When it's important. Um, But why talk about it beyond that? Like, I would not expect people to question me beyond a certain point about my. Uh, sexual life or anything like that because it's private business yeah i don't have anything to say to people but people will gossip at the same time and i think because there's such a need to gossip in sri lanka about <laughs> these things, and people will yeah. that's the other reason of like hey keep it private tell the people you care about knowing yeah and the other thing is if people have a huge amount of influence over your life and if you don't feel comfortable Telling people because you think that's going to harm you in some way, then it's best to not. Yeah, you know. So I can totally understand. I don't think people should be forced to come out. They have to come out when they feel safe to.
0: Oh, do it in do it in a different way, like you said.
1: Like yeah, like uh, coming out seems to imply like a huge party, a huge declaration, something like that. Yeah, like no, it can be just telling someone quite quietly, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, and
0: keeping the public and private selves separate.
1: Some friends, some of my closest friends know. Some of them like were like yeah. Let's you you know they figured it out uh lots uh, my my sister knows my mother knows uh my cousins know one of my cousins was the first to know ages yeah. ago and it was simply because he asked me a question about hey what do you think about that girl look, how that girl looks you know or something like that and that's how we started talking about it and uh my colleagues know as far as they need to know and yeah like slowly people will get to know that's fine people who are listening to this who may know me who did not know before now they know <laughs> hello <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> that's about it.
1: So, yeah. So, who else needs to?
0: Yep. To anyone listening in, um, you're listening to Queering the Air. Um, so, Marisa, we, ha- we have Marisa Vikramanayake here today. You started writing for a school magazine at the age of nine. At the age of 17, you put together a series of short stories and essays. You became a finalist at the Gresham Awards in 2001. Right after this, you had several ideas for a book. Can you tell us a little bit about the book you've been writing, Sedition? Yep, it's called Sedition So it does have a queer
1: character in it So I had an idea I, I wanted to write about um, The idea of masculinity And how, how boys should behave If they want to be considered male In Sri Lankan society yeah. I wanted to write about the landscape I wanted to write about a lesbian relationship And then I was struggling to like Make books and stories out of All these ideas And then finally they kind of came together And I go, oh, they can all be in one book yay so yeah i started writing this book in 2005 it's the story of a british expat teacher and uh, two kids she meets uh, that she kind of knows through the school that she teaches at and how she gets stranded in sri lanka and how they try the three of them try to help each other and they all have problems one of them doesn't want to go back to university in england another person is lesbian and dealing with that and you know all all of that and how, who, who survives and who doesn't and why, you know, because they all assume they cannot ask for help from anyone else.
0: Interesting. Um, I'm also interested in the publishing industry in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Um, contents of books are scanned very carefully and certain thoughts and ideas are banned, particularly if they are part of a school's curriculum. Could you comment a little bit about that? Uh,
1: from my understanding, if it's going to, into the school curriculum, then the government is very careful about what is and isn't in it. And you can understand that certain grades, you don't want kids reading about certain things because they're not ready for that yet. Um, I don't know how far it goes. And this is very second hand from me. So, um, when I was in school, we rarely, we have two curriculums that um, go out in Sri Lanka, there's the Sinhala language curriculum and Tamil language curriculum, and that can have books by local authors in it quite often. And then you have what is the London system, where everyone is in English medium. A-levels, O-levels. O-levels, A-levels. Yeah. And um, we have Sri Lankan O-levels and A-levels and then London as well. And in the Sri Lankan system, you can now do English medium as well. Yeah. But in the London O levels and A levels, your your literature is generally re, uh, restricted to uh, that of British. Yeah, what Brit- they choose. Yeah, yeah, what what they've chosen for the syllabus. So you learn Shakespeare and you learn. I mean, I had uh, George Eliot. Yeah. Oh my God, I had Silas Mann, <laughs> I had T.S. Eliot and I had uh, yeah. Shakespeare for when I did literature. So you very rarely get local English authors on the curriculum. Yeah. The local Sinhala and Tamil authors, they will read, but I've also realized they don't translate across yeah, very often. So it'd be different authors, for, depending on which medium you're in and studying it. And then you don't often get to find out about what the other groups are reading and what their cultures in life is like, because you're not reading them. You're not reading those authors. You're yeah. reading foreign authors or you're reading what's been set on your curriculum. And I think that's very bizarre and strange. W-
0: would you say that through reading habits, which you've just described, you can learn a lot about the race and the class struggle within the country because you have mm-hmm. a racial struggle, mm-hmm. but because we were colonized, we kind of have replicated the the, the class. class system. Yes. You have a cl- not a it's not a class system. There's a difference. Yes. Like There's a class. You know, you have the middle and the upper middle, and then you have the proletariat, the working <laughs> class. <laughs> And then you have, you know, upper, low, upper working class and lower working class. Yeah,
1: we, we have a lot of differences because when the, the last few years when the British were there, the mixed uh, races, the, the burgers, as we call them, the Euro-Asian mixes, so whether they were Portuguese, Dutch or British mixed with Sinhala or Tamil people, they were the ones who knew English um, and knew Dutch, and so they were often put into professional roles and they were like almost the gatekeepers between like the actual british and the actual dutch and the yeah. um other races in the cingalese and tamils and then the, there's a group of tamils that were brought over to work on estates for example so they're in even lower working class situation though things are slowly improving for them
0: That's not exactly true though because <coughs> as we have seen mm-hmm. through the organisations it's a lot uh, it's kind of fluid yeah it's so, very fluid um it's there is it's not the same as america or it's not the same as here where you have this big institutionalized structural problem it it, it is a bit different but yeah
1: it's it's a it's a mix almost of like what racial ethnicity you are and what class you are and people seem to be able to judge this and then treat each other accordingly and they put them in this system and it's so bizarre to me and i'm upper middle class um and like it's it's where it's not what i was raised to think even though it's what I lived in. And it's very, very bizarre to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, just the little groups. It's, it's, ha- it's, it's, it's like you said, like the race and the class are kind of mixed together and it's they've kind of ballooned out from mm-hmm. there and they have their own little circles and their cliques because of that. Um, so another thing I'd like to touch upon is the Civil War. It lasted for, am I right, 35 years? No,
1: 20. 20 25 years. 25 years. It's 83 to 2009.
0: Okay, so it was um, quarter of a decade, quarter of a... Century. (laughs) Century. (laughs) Can you talk to me about the part of reading played in this and also how reading would have maybe helped you kind of escape or deal with it?
1: I think a lot of us were looking for escapism. Um, Our parents generation really struggled they remember what it was like to be free right and,
0: and <laughs> i don't know Ooh, i mean i do know now but i was born uh, into the war <laughs> yeah yeah no we
1: didn't know we were the war generation right so we were born into the war so we grew up with the idea that it wasn't safe to go outside on the streets and things like that but for them that was never the case they traveled uh, across the country safely they had seen things they were playing cricket in the streets there was no such thing as a curfew um, they had lots of possibly other things to worry about, you know, like um, rubbing two cents together and hoping there was some money, thanks to Bandar and Aika, um, and rationing in the 70s. But, you know, we, we had it much better, I think. Uh, well, no, sorry. We didn't have it much better. But they we had it much worse. <laughs> we had it much worse. But we didn't know the difference, right? So they yeah. knew the difference. So for them, it's more traumatic because they were like, oh, how are we going to raise our kids? We can't give them all the good things that we experienced growing up and it was really i think it's really sad for them um for me i think yeah it was escapism because life was very limited and boring in a lot of ways and when i grew up there was an idea of what girls could do if they were teenagers and you could if you were allowed to have people come and spend the day with you or you could go shopping and maybe you were involved in sports teams and you had tuition after class and things like that to do off. After mm-hmm. school finished, but beyond that, that was it, you know. And it was very boring for me. So thank heavens the internet came along,
0: <laughs> um, which goes right into our next question. Yeah.
1: So I think a lot of people did. Um, did start reading to escape that. A lot of Muslim boys I knew were reading quite a lot. But a lot of the people, other people around me, weren't reading. They didn't want to read, at least not in my grade. Yeah. And then Harry Potter hit. And Harry <laughs> Potter hit.
0: Exploded. Yeah.
1: Harry Potter got people reading. It was great, but it hit the grades below me. So I missed out just by that much. By ha- And I, I was never into Harry Potter.
0: Oh, you, n- you never got in? <laughs> I was never into
1: Harry Potter, Twilight, or Lord of the Rings. So I read... I got to read Lord of the Rings as a teenager, but I was never into it as such. Right, but I was into Pratchett, and so I had a in with all the Muslim boys. Uh, oh,
0: it was keep great mentioning that. My first, my first boyfriend was a Muslim just boy. So, just so you know, uh, Marisa's partner is here as well. Andrew is here, <laughs> <laughs> listening in with us.
1: He doesn't mind.
0: Um, so yeah, no,
1: no. My, my first boyfriend was a, a Muslim boy, born a Muslim boy, and he was. Oh, uh, Bora. The, the bass guitarist in a death metal band, Stigmata, that's still going strong today. It was fantastic. So people escaped through things like music um, because we were finally getting cable network channels and MTV and things like that. They escaped through shopping. And, and then some people got hold of the Internet and video games and they were escaping through that. And so it was a very few people who were escaping through reading, at least in my grade. And um, I found out about people, you kept it to yourself if you really wasn't cool. So I found out later about people who like poetry and things like that. And I was like, my God, if I had known, I would have been friends with you sooner. Yeah, we could have had something to
0: connect <laughs> to yeah, yeah, to talk
1: about. But the grades below me, they were much more open about that. And yeah. I think Harry Potter helped in that way it's, because it's strange yeah. because
0: I I'm a Harry Potter geek and I grew up in that generation and everyone talked about it and yeah. you even now like you could just connect with a stranger over the fact that you read that and it was such yeah. an integ- integral part of our lives and I don't really know if children of the coming generation would experience the same love of reading and that same mm. connection to a story yeah. and to a series. It's it's very special and I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. Um something I'd also like to touch upon is writing and you talked about writing as a way of combating your loneliness mm-hmm. and how during the internet's early ages women taught themselves to code to build websites and publish fan fiction online. Can you tell us a little bit about finding a voice purpose, mostly important, uh, most importantly, community in the early days of the internet? So I have to credit
1: my parents because I read a lot of um, fiction that was on their bookshelves, so I read all the Agatha Christie's, I read a lot of crime fiction, then they had all the thrillers. I don't like the thrillers, I really don't, so Grisham's and things like that are not my cup of tea, uh, but I read all of those and then I was very bored. And <laughs> I kept buying books to read, people give me books, but It was uh, it was lonely. Like it takes time. I think I had a lot of family friends. They were in different schools. I had my sister, she was younger than me. But it takes time for people to kind of grow into who they are and then for you to make friends and, and, and realize these people have got your back. You can trust them with anything, and even if they're very different from you. But it was lonely during that period. And I didn't have very good friends at school at the time. Um, we have much better friends now, I think, than we were to each other when we were in school. So, thankfully, the Internet came along and I was on the Internet. And I was chatting in MSN chat rooms. I was on... Uh sites live journal and a o l online had um started letting people create pages. The guys seemed to be in the chat rooms and looking trying to look at porn and things on the internet as you would <laughs> except that you would take twenty minutes for a picture to download, so like yeah, <laughs> yeah I you remember know that um. And you're dialing up and everyone else is screaming at you to get off the phone because, yeah. you know, yeah, you, they want to make calls and things like that. And then um, the girls were, because boy bands had come along, and this was the huge thing, right? There were camps in school and cliques because of which boy band you preferred, right? Whether you were Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or, you know, Hanson <laughs> even at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And then there were, you know, East 17 and Oasis and Blur and, you know, Five from England and all of that. And then people were building websites and pages to talk about these boy bands to cha- exchange pictures to build up a collection they were like they were using ms paint to make gifs and little doll stickers and things like that that they could put up so and they taught each other how to code and it was mostly girls doing this yeah and i was i was in the middle of all of this and i this is where i also learned to code and build websites, but the boys weren't doing it. It was yeah. very strange. They had no, no impetus to do it. Yeah, there was no, no, no in. <laughs> they had no reason to do it. Yeah. right. They were there. And they were like, "What can this give us?" Oh, it takes too long to download an image. So yeah. it. Did, yeah, I think it kind of petered off. They did other things. They were more <laughs> interested in Michael Jordan and basketball and things <laughs> like basketball that. Basketball was a yeah. big thing. Yeah, it was huge. Basketball oh. and
0: wrestling, huge. I used to remember watching wrestling, by the way, was <laughs> yeah, <with> my grandma. <laughs> Yeah. Um, awful. But um, you were part of a chat room, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you managed a tavern online <laughs> full of young internet geek boys. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I,
1: I wandered into the chat rooms and then I realised obvious sex was the big focus. Um, and it was very interesting to be... I, I just wandered into the fantasy chat rooms at that point because that was far more interesting and they had a rule. You had to mm, create a character and be uh, role-play as a character throughout. And... um. So I created a character, and then I was in um, – the chat room itself was supposed to be the, the location and the tavern and the setting. And I, I, I looked around, and it was so many boys trying to pick fights with various other characters in there. Like so They thought, you come into a tavern, you drink too much, and you, you pick a fight. That's what you do. So that's what they were role-playing. And I was just like, well, this is not my thing. So then I tried to set up a story, and I actually said, can I be the admin of the chat so then I can be the person behind the bar kicking me. It's my bar, and this is where it's set. Yeah. This is where the bar is set. It's in this town. The people are wondering. So I'm going to kick you out now. I'm going to kick you out now. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was it, pretty much. Yeah, and th- these were... Like 12 year old kids from Virginia in the States online playing, you know, and I was, what, 16 at the time? It was. That's really cool.
0: It's so interesting that you were the start of the internet. (laughs) <laughs> um And and fandoms basically. Yeah, uh, this is where fan fiction started. This was before Archive of Us
1: Online and all of that. So, yeah. I love
0: fandoms so much. Yeah. And my cousin back home, you know, she doesn't have much to do either. She's part of this Korean boy band fandom called BTS. Yes, and BTS she runs, is fantastic. And she runs this like, Instagram account <laughs> and she has like. She has more followers than brands do and I'm just like, this uh-huh. is like really intense and, you know, it's all pictures with captions and it's so creative and quirky yes. and, you know, I'm all for the fandoms. Yeah. They make people, they make or break bands as well. Yeah, okay. It's um, fantastic.
2: Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender.
0: Listening to Queering the Air, and this is Devana. We've got Iris on, and we've got Marisa, our special guest today. So, we're going to talk about a bit about freelancing, which you started after graduating, and we want to talk to you a little about it how you got started, um, what you learned out of it as well.
1: I started one week after graduating in 2008. I'd gone for two years to the States and I dropped out after two years. I didn't see The financial sense in continuing to pay a huge amount for um, basically curriculum that I'd already learned. And I didn't think it was going anywhere. So I came to Australia and I started studying my undergrad, did an honours year. And then at graduation, realised like it was barely in the middle of the recession and that people were not going to employ me. And I'd been sending out um, applications and things and nothing had been working. I'd taken one journalism class, I'd been writing a uh, weekly column uh, for about three years at that point for the Sunday Leader. And so I thought, okay, I'll try this. And I'd also spent a lot of time editing other people's honours theses rather than working on my
0: own. <laughs> you get paid for this? No. For free. Um,
1: so then I thought, no, someone had introduced me to the Society of Editors. So I, I thought, okay, no, this is what I'll do. I applied for my ABN and I started freelancing right after I graduated as an editor to start with. And then I was still writing my column and when it ended someone had been a fan of it over here and they hired me to do science journalism work freelance okay which was handy because by that time I had been 6 months freelancing yeah yeah um, so that's how I got started and it just went on started. from then can yeah. you
0: also talk about you talked about how there's no distinction between the personal and the private life and the professional life as a freelancer can you talk about how they kind of blend together for
1: for a long time? Because you were struggling to make money, you were struggling to try and make ends meet. You felt you had to work constantly every day. And by work, I mean you're just sitting in front of a laptop, trying to like find a place to buy your stories, trying to find ideas, um, try to pitch, you know, trying to find clients who want you to edit their work. And it was frustrating. I went and I did free. Uh, gigs at various places or at radio stations, I did music reviews, I did book reviews for the West australia, and you tried everything you could get. Yeah, And you kept trying to also, I mean, it was the start of when everybody kind of went, oh, my God, this system we've had for journalism is not working. It hasn't worked for like hundreds of years, but no, it's not working anymore now. Basically, the <laughs> ability of
0: the industry is yeah. ordered. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's slowly building up again. They're trying to get all these rights for digital journalists again.
1: Yeah, they're trying to get rights for digital journalists, but whether the jobs are there In the first place (laughs) is the other question. Um, There's lots of people trying to get content from various other means and and, um, not where it doesn't actually come across as journalism. It doesn't count as journalism. And then, therefore, they're not called journalists, so they don't come under that sort of banner. They don't get those rights. Therefore, you know, uh, things are very easily uh, kept from you according to a label. Yeah. So for right now, freelancers, for example, they're listed as contractors. And because they're contractors, they cannot have minimum wage conditions. They cannot have access to those sorts of rights that other employees would because they're yeah. treated as small business, which no they are. <laughs> <laughs> which they are, but we have to change that. But that's in the law. So that, yeah. that's, the, that's the hard part about being a freelancer. This
0: is not on the... But I want to talk <laughs> about this because journalists love talking about this. What do you think about the blurring lines between advertising and journalism? Oh
1: uh, No, I, th- I think it's very important to declare when it's advertising and when it's journalism. You, it's you
0: have to have that
1: declaration up front. People need mm. to know if there is another intention behind what they're reading. They need to be made aware that the intention here is to sell you something. Yeah. Fine whatever, and then you can accept that. You know it's an ad, right? Yeah. And then the intention here is to give you a review. Yeah. And then the intention here is to actually tell you the facts of what's happened. I think that has to be clear. Yeah. It, can, it can be make. I mean, if this is the model that's going to go ahead and this is the model that's going to work where we have proportionally more advertising content than journalism content, fine. But there, I think it has to be signposted very clearly. You cannot pass it off yeah. as um, actual journalism when it isn't, I think. Yeah. That does everyone a disservice.
0: That's really interesting because a lot of good journalists hate it when they cross over and they hate the term content, which I hate as well. It's (laughs) awful. And all of these are just ads. They're just ads passing off as journalism articles, more or less. Yeah, they can be.
1: We call it advertorial. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's awful. It's awful. (laughs) Um, So now, um, can you talk a little bit about the identity of being a writer? Um, What does it constitute? Why are people so hesitant to use it? There is so much responsibility, right? To call I, I, I a think
1: writer. I think people think quite often that they have to be fully published and selling and so on before they can actually call themselves a writer. I don't agree with that. Yeah. I, but I also am kind of like, look, whenever you feel comfortable, you can call yourself a writer. I didn't realize like you you start writing, you start being an artist, you start doing these things, and then you realize that because you're queer or because you have a disability or because you're personal color or indigenous or something like that. It is inherently political yeah. when you do this stuff. And it's very annoying to some people. They're always like, why are you always on about the political stuff and the rights and everything like that? And yeah. It's like you can't not be. You, you, if, you're, if you're white and you're male, generally you have a lot of privilege. You can switch off to those things. You don't have to worry because the system works for you. Yeah. It works in your favor, mm-hmm. right? But if you have anything that differentiates you in some way that people can use to discriminate against you, and sometimes it's not even overt, you can't see it happening. Right? You don't realize till it's over or something or you suspect it's happening, you can't pinpoint it or it's in attitudes that means that your work is not bought or it's not published or you don't get a leg up, you don't get anything started, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, you have to constantly talk about it. If you don't talk about it, people don't know and they assume that you have the same access to the playing field as they do. Mm. And lots of people have been surprised when I tell them, like, no, actually, you know, it's going to be harder for me because I'm X, Y, and Z. And I don't believe that. That's not me playing the victim. That's me saying, this is what it is. If you don't like it, if it makes you uncomfortable, do something about it. Yeah. You know, so, yeah.
0: Uh, Would you say that being a writer is a responsibility or a privilege? Because in Australia, there's a belief that being a writer is a privilege. Um, This was said in the Griffith Review. There was a speech at the Wheeler Centre. And they were like, oh, but being a writer is a privilege. And I was like, that's only in Australia because an Indian woman intervened. And she was like, no, it's actually a responsibility.
1: Yeah, I think it's both because I think you have to understand that if you are able to write and you are able to freely do it, like you generally have some freedom in sense of income and things like that, you're not worried about that. We have to acknowledge that that sort of thing comes into it. And that's why it's important also to look at class because the stories of people who don't have that much money and are in a lower socioeconomic class because of it or don't have that much access, those stories are also important. Absolutely. Right, we can't just have always upper middle class, upper class people talking, right? So I'm always very aware of that. I have to step aside and say, no, someone else has to then take my mm. spot and talk about these things. There needs to be space for them. So in that way, you have to acknowledge that there's privilege that allows you to write, the yeah. space to write. But then it's also responsibility. Yeah, You have to tell the truth, I think, when you write. Even if you're writing fiction, the truth of the you have to showcase what the reality of the situation is. You know, you can't Absolutely. make up something.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Marisa. Can you tell us where we can find you online? Your website details, social media handles, um, Facebook page? Okay. Uh, so Facebook page is facebook.com slash
1: marisa.com.au. The website is marisa.com.au. Email is marissa at marissa.com.au. <laughs> Twitter is different, mvikramaniaca. So you'll have to find that.
0: Can <laughs> we I should add you on Twitter, by the way. Yeah. Can you also tell us a little bit about um, the services you offer? So if anyone listening in is, is oh, okay. wanting to take yeah. advantage of them.
1: So uh, the one thing you one thing you should know is that I am a federal delegate for the union. So you can always talk to me about anything to do with working rights for journals, editors or writers. Um and all those things, what you need to do. If you're in stuck in a situation, you can contact me about that. But uh, services-wise, what I offer, I offer editing of fiction, non-fiction, corporate, government documentation. I do journalism, and I do creative writing. You can come and read stuff, and I mentor people as well. So if you are stuck in your business, if you want to talk to me as a creative writer, I can mentor you through things like that.
0: Thank you, all her so she's great, and she's a great um, mentor as well, like it's This is a testimony. Um, We're going to just do some. And now it's time for the events that we're interested in. So I've got a couple of events out here. Um, The first one is Talking Words with Eric Jensen of the Saturday Paper and Catherine Braben. It's held at the All Press Toastery um, on the 21st of April. I will be here. Come say hi to me if you do come. The event is run by the Melbourne-based Independent Magazine Celebrating the Importance of Culture and Place, Lindsay Magazine, a really great mag, independent as well. Um, Yeah, check them out. And they're also selling magazines at the moment. Um, Also coming up is Wet Fest at the Howl on the 21st of April. The lineup is excellent and proudly includes Brooke Powers, Jess War, Corinne, Saskans, Morning Lisa, Race Rage, and Porpoise Fit. Also check out Sampa the Great at the Night Cat. The BBEE9 experience promises a rich, multiform realization of the spiritually-minded healing messages and no-holds-barred social outlook conveyed through the refreshingly honest and awe-inspiring mixtape. On the twenty fourth of April, on the twenty fourth of April, excuse me, my favourite celebrity, Aquarius, is in Melbourne. It is Harry Styles on tour two thousand eighteen at the High Sense Arena. This is big guys. Everyone just go for it. I mean the tickets are priced at three hundred dollars. It's exorbitantly expensive, but it's Harry Styles. Harry Styles has redefined masculinity and queer pop stardom through his excellent fashion fashion choices. He has transformed from unabashed heartthrob to revered arthrob. Oh, yes, it is the superstar himself, and I'm a Larry Stylinson fangirl. Also on the 24th of April is the Cocoa Butter Club in Melbourne. The Cocoa Butter Club exists to promote for p- per- per- performers of colour that are creating in a multitude of mediums. It's a creative clapback and a safer space for IAOPOC expression. Um, the venue is wheelchair accessible, and the show will be Auslan inter- interpreted and the toilets on-premise and gender neutral. Iris, you've got some events as well?
2: Yes, I do. Thanks for that, Dev. Um, So, on the 22nd of April is Floating Key in Melbourne. Floating Key prioritises black and pot communities, and this club night is open to those outside the context, too. The night's called Drip and described as trippy, which visits space for a dance party. The gasometer is, yes, at the gasometer and it's wheelchair accessible. The event is Auslan interpreted until it's on site will be gender neutral. And The event is produced by China Elise and Rose Simonson. Um The next event is Simona Castricum is having a residen- residency this month, and every Tuesday at the Tote from 8 p.m., she's previewing a bunch of work for an upcoming "What if Safety Becomes Permanent." The next Tuesday features tape, Cable Ties, Hex Dabs, Sad, plus DJ Air Horn, Mummy, and the 24th of April. The one the, this. Next Tuesday lineup, I think, um, includes Race Rage, Alice Styles, and Trixie Darko. The tour is not wheelchair accessible. Um, and the next event I have is um, the sad announcement that Two Steps in the Water are going on hiatus. Uh, yeah, and they're having a last show for now at the Gasometer on Friday, the 27th of April from 8.30pm, and guests are to be announced. Um, and the last thing I have is the Trans and Gender Diverse Myriad Collective is presenting their fifth annual International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia exhibit and performance night at the library at the Dock on Docklands. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's two separate things. And the exhibition, which is uh, visual art, starts on April 19th and runs to May 10th. And the opening night is on the... I, um. Yeah. Oh no! This is the opening night. Yeah, the opening night of the exhibit is on the nineteenth of April, and it runs from six to seven thirty p.m. And check that out, and that's free.
0: You um, can. Thanks. Thank you so much, Iris. Um, you can find our podcast at threecrorgau air. Check that. Check them out. They've got. We've got some good. Episodes on there. Um, thank you so much for everyone listening in on this Sunday. I hope you have a good rest of the weekend. Um, next up is Hip Sister Hop, and to tune out, we've got Candy. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station
1: 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.